soy indita, mexicanita, que vendo flores y en el portal también Welcome, friends and allies, to the Texocentrist podcast. I am your host, Jasmina Kasirk, and on our first episode, we will cover a topic that is near and dear to my heart, one of the many immigrant fabrics that makes up the cultural patchwork of our beloved Texas, the Czechs. Now, before I go any further, I want to address what I think are my personal biases on this topic. Bias, after all, colors how we look at the world, and it's good for you to know where mine are going in. I am of mostly Czech descent on my dad's side of the family. In fact, my last name means little tomcat in Czech. Uh, Additionally, I work at the Czech Center Museum, Houston, currently, so I spend a lot of time with this topic. When it comes to sources, I'm working primarily from a book called Krasna America, a study of Texas Czechs. 1851 to 1939. I won't be covering all that period, but I am going to hit the highlights. Now, if any Texan has heard a word of Czech, it's probably Kalachi. Most folks probably don't even know that the Kalachi is Czech, or that it more correctly refers to the sweet, fruit-centered pastries, the sausage Kalachi being something of a Texas innovation. Why does this matter? Well, it's one of the wonderful things that sets us Texans apart. Also, because Texas has the largest population of Czech Americans in the United States. The Handbook of Texas Online says that as of the 2000 census, 187,729 Texans reported being of Czech descent. So how did the Kalachi, and by extension, all these Czechs end up here? Well, for that we have to go back to the mid-1800s, and the old country, what's now the Czech Republic but was, until 1918, part of the sprawling Austro-Hungarian Empire. You see, unlike most European nations at the time, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was still upholding old feudal obligations, more or less up until the rebellions of 1848. What that meant in practice was that the government was taxing away 70% of what you as a peasant farmer raised or grew. You were basically kept in total economic bondage. In theory, you paid these taxes for services from your local lord, like the right to farm on the lord's manor, use the local judicial system, and the ability to appeal to the lord for personal protection. Unfortunately, more often than not, the person you needed protection from was that lord, who could legally beat you for failure to meet your duties. Worst of all in the minds of many Czech peasants, though, was the robata. That was the system of forced labor where you owed your lord a certain number of days labor on his land, usually during harvest and planting season. Peasants often viewed this as a form of slavery, and fun fact, it's where we get the word robot today. And in addition to this economic bondage, there were humiliating societal customs such as removing your hat when you came within 300 paces of the manor house and addressing government officials as my gracious lord. All these practices were finally done away with thanks to a coalition of peasants, workers, students, and liberals in 1848, and it also became easier to emigrate out of the empire. There were other factors that made emigration desirable, though. Firstly, the empire was pushing Germanization on the people and had been since the 17th century. By the start of the 1800s, the Czech language had nearly died out, and by the mid-1800s was still heavily influenced by the German language. There was, at this time, though, 
a large upswell of Czech nationalism. So why Texas? Well, partly it had to do with a book written by one of the first Czechs to visit here. Carl Anton Postel visited Texas as early as 1823 and wrote many exciting tales set here under the pen name Charles Sealsford. The most famous was a book he wrote in German called The Cabin Book, which painted an idyllic picture of life in Texas. Postel was born in 1793 and had been a Catholic monk and priest in Prague. He rose to an administrative position in his order, but for some reason in 1823 he suddenly disappeared. He was sought by Prague and Viennese police for 40 years, but they never got word of him. Even today, Postel's life remains a mystery, partly because he ran off and partly because of his work and personality. But the largest draw of checks to Texas were the letters of Reverend Josef Arnost Bergman, known to some as the father of Czech immigration to Texas. Bergman was born in Bohemia, what is now the Western Czech Republic, in 1797. He attended Catholic seminary in Prague, but eventually converted to Lutheranism and finished his studies in Silesia. Bergman was very much influenced by the Czech national revival that was going on in the mid-1800s and longed for the establishment of democracy. He learned about Texas from some German Lutheran soldiers and decided that's where he needed to be. He decided to give up everything, packed up his family, and moved to Texas, setting sail from Europe in October of 1849 and arriving in Galveston in March of 1850. He then went to the tiny town of Cat Springs in Austin County. There he was hired by the German colonists as preacher and school teacher. He then set about writing a letter to his friends back in the Czech lands, extolling the many opportunities to be found in Texas. He wrote that large amounts of land were available at cheap prices and that he had already acquired many chickens, hogs, cows, and even a horse. This letter was eventually published in a Moravian newspaper and many Moravians began making plans to move to the great free state of Texas. They came initially to Austin, Colorado, and Fayette counties, spreading there east and south to the coast. Eventually, there were even significant communities as far south as the Mexico border. By the time of the Civil War, so in a span of about 10 years, there were 700 Czechs in Texas. But the war and the Union blockade put a halt to further immigration. For the most part, Czech settlers in Texas wanted nothing to do with the Civil War. Very few Czechs owned slaves, and the legacy of guilt and hate, which colored all white-black relations in this country, had much less meaning to the Czechs. Not only was slavery irrelevant to Czech social structure and methods of farming, but they were also morally opposed to it in principle, having left what they felt was very much like slavery in the old country. In fact, one Czech doctor, Anthony Dignowitty, was a prominent abolitionist in San Antonio. In some ways, these first Czech settlers came in a bad time. For most, there was very little time to grow accustomed to life in a foreign land after an often harrowing journey at sea and then the confrontation of war. The conflict between the North and the South was incomprehensible to most Czechs, and the idea of brother fighting brother over black slavery was, to put it mildly, unattractive and hard to understand. To make things worse, many, like Dignowitty, were literally fleeing severe Austrian conscription laws and were now expected to fight and die for a cause that they did not understand or identify with. Some of them were even out-and-out -out pacifists. Also, friction was caused because several northern Czech journals circulating in Texas were discovered by the Anglos to espouse anti-slavery sentiments and their subscribers were threatened with hanging. One man in Colorado County went so far as to buy a $900 slave in order to save himself. 
All in all, only about 40 Czechs served in the Confederate Army. Most served in some capacity with state troops or in local militias, did their three to six months, and then came home. Few saw active duty in the war. Many tried to ignore the war, but that wasn't feasible with the Confederate need for manpower, and Texas conscripted men between the ages of 18 and 15, which included the heads of most Czech households. The book Krasna America shares the story of one Ignaz Krenik and his 10-year-old son, who were hauling their cotton to gin when, and I quote, on the way the conscription officers caught him, and despite his pleas took him away, leaving the 10-year-old boy with the wagon and five pairs of oxen. Thanks to one conscientious soldier, the boy got home. Krenik was taken to Columbus, where he was imprisoned for 14 days there with other countrymen. This refers to other Czechs, who had suffered the same fate. With one, Krenik brought up the idea of possible mutual escape. He wouldn't even listen to Krenik's offer for fear of being caught and shot. Therefore, Krenik decided to try it alone. Early one morning, he crawled outside with his shoes in one hand and a blanket under his arm and ran into the streets of Columbus, aiming at the brush on the bank of the Colorado River, which separated him from home. Without a moment's thought, he jumped into the water and happily swam across the river. He ran all day through the forest so as to escape recapture. When he got to Countryman Ademek's farm, he spotted a group of riders bearing down on the farm full gallop. Krenik quickly hid. By evening, worn out and hungry, he arrived home. He had to hide 17 weeks, however, before he could be seen in public. Another case was that of Josef Holik and his family, who settled on a farm near New Ulm, arriving after 1859. Rather than be conscripted, Holik hid out in the woods while his wife and children ran the farm as best they could. He was arrested by soldiers after hearing a false rumor that the war was over and trying to visit his family. He escaped and remained in hiding for the duration of the war. There were many such draft dodgers among the Czechs, but they weren't considered cowards among their own communities. In fact, some young Czech and German men were killed while resisting conscription. Being as ignoring the war was clearly impossible, some chose to become teamsters. This allowed them to avoid conscription and to financially profit at the same time. Because of the Union blockade, Confederate cotton had to be taken by wagon to Mexico. Teamsters were paid 10 cents in gold for every pound that they transported. Not bad work, and certainly better than being paid in nearly worthless Confederate script. The cotton was hauled in convoys of 3 to 15 wagons. Most of the convoys began in Fayette County, one of the most heavily Czech counties in Texas. However, Confederate authorities tried to limit Teamster service to the young and infirm as they wanted soldiers. Still, other Texas Czechs found ways to serve in the Union Army and fight against slavery with one family having a father serving in the Confederacy and his son being convinced by a friend to join the Union while hauling cotton to Brownsville. The war years were a time when many young Czechs were forced to come to grips with the new society they found themselves in. Those left behind on the farm suffered greatly during the war. Czech women were used to doing farm work, but not the heavy labor which was typically done by the fathers and sons. There were shortages which made it all the more difficult to feed and clothe the family. Moreover, some were even forced to fight off renegade soldiers and outlaws who thought that they could get away with preying on so-called foreigners. After the war, new Czech settlers began to arrive again in Texas. Things were, however, no easier. 
those who settled in the small town of Moravia, Texas in the 1870s were robbed by bands of outlaws and harassed by so-called Irish pranksters. In other communities, bands of Anglo youth would occasionally shoot up a Czech celebration or dance. Also, Catholic Czechs, which made up the largest settlement of Czech settlers, were occasionally prosecuted by the Ku Klux Klan and other like terrorist organizations. These kinds of physical attacks were relatively uncommon, however, and more subtle kinds of discrimination often led to ill feelings between Czechs and Anglos. For example, one reporter from the Flatonia Argus in 1885 wrote about a Czech school in Praha, where students carried out their studies in Czech, German, and English. He went on to say, and I quote, It is gratifying to us to know that a class of foreigners who our people are disposed to look down upon as a race too inferior to associate with were manifesting sufficient interest in their progeny to have them educated in the language of their adopted country. This condescending tone, of course, caused a furor among the Czech residents of the area. Many contemporary accounts and memoirs of Czech immigrants noted that harassment was equally balanced by neighborliness with established American families providing food or medical assistance to struggling Czech pioneers. Largely, Texas Czechs were ignored by most rather than harassed. The general view was that the Czechs were a clannish but fun-loving, light-hearted people who loved to dance, sing, and eat their ethnic food, especially the now-famous kolachi. It was also generally acknowledged that they were industrious and excellent farmers. One journal even went so far as to credit Texas's checks with being able to turn what an American would use for a hog pasture into a profitable farm. As for their own racial prejudices, as I said before, the checks did feel a certain sympathy for African Americans, but that did not mean they were free of prejudice. For one thing, many of them had never seen a black person before coming to Texas and were startled and frightened the first times they did so. Also, calling them clannish could be a legitimate criticism of their communities. For many of them, marrying a child off to a German was a step too far, much less marrying someone who was black. Nevertheless, racism tended to be more passive than anything. In many areas, such as Snook and Tunis, Czech and free black communities coexisted peacefully at close proximity to one another. With Mexican-American communities, the relationship was a bit closer, especially in those early days. Many Czech settlers were Catholic, and as such, their parish communities were mixed. While both groups would mostly keep to themselves, they would cooperate in parish activities, and this led to some group interaction. Also, Mexican-American border culture has one strong and interesting affinity with that of the Czechs, polka, which originated in the Czech lands about 1830. Its name possibly came from the Czech term pulka, which means half-step. At any rate, by 1900, the Czechs were firmly established in Texas, with the 1910 census reporting about 41,000 either being Czech or having Czech parents. But you wanted to hear about kolaches, didn't you? Well, the sweet kolache of many highwayside bakeries, from the Czech Stop and Village Bakery in West to Wakels in LaGrange and Prosheks down in Hilji, is an outgrowth of Moravian-style kolach. You won't find kolache like this back in Prague. And the sausage kolache, you ask? That staple of Texas breakfast was created at the Village Bakery in West, which opened in 1952. Pedants will tell you that the sausage kolache 
should be called a klobasniki, meaning little sausage, but apparently the village bakery has copyright on that. So if you go to a donut shop in LA or Boston and you ask for a dozen kolaches and they look at you like you're nuts, you can thank the Texas Checks for that. I want to thank you for listening to my first episode. You can find the show notes at thetexocentrist.com and please follow me on Twitter at thetexocentrist for updates about the show. If you have any comments or to suggest an episode topic, you can email me at thetexocentrist at gmail.com. This podcast is dedicated to my late father, David Kasurik, who would have been 68 today. He was my first introduction to Texas history and a wonderful father. While other parents were reading their children fairy tales before bed, my dad was reading my sister and I articles from Texas Parks and Wildlife. When we went on road trips, he stopped at every historical marker we saw and took us camping and fishing and generally was a great dad. He also loved the weird and wacky hidden nooks of Texas history. One of his favorite figures was Erastus Deef Smith, whom I will one day cover. In sum, this is for you, Daddy. We miss you.